I've uh, been studying other areas, uh, but something Dad was praying on uh, Wednesday night triggered my thinking, changed directions, and so we'll see how this goes. Let's ask the Lord for His blessing and help and understand Him. Father, we come before you this morning, and again, thank you for coming of your Son, for your sending of Him to be our Savior. We thank you for the extent for which His work there on the cross reached, to reach even to us, to bring all sinners who would turn to Him to yourself. I ask for your help now as we look into your Word, that we might learn to and be encouraged to appreciate the Lord and depend on him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 3 uh, is the tail end, the last part of the letters to the seven churches of uh, Asia, letters that John wrote that he was, uh, as far as we know, he was instructed word for word by the Lord as far as what to write. So these are actually letters from the Lord the seven churches that came through the pen of John. Now, there are some who have looked at these seven churches and compared them to the different uh, periods of time during the church age, and and have noted that there seem to be parallels in the history of the church with these each of these churches and the message to each of the churches. So you've got the first church in uh, chapter 2 is the church of Ephesus and the writing to them how they had left their first love and that follows through different churches and you can see where there's different persecution and hardship and uh, then finally at the end you come to the church of Laodicea and there's many who have noted that there are parallels between Laodicea and the church at large today. So I want to think about this uh, for a little bit, at least start here with the uh, Church of Laodicea in uh, the last part of Revelation 3. That starts in verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. (coughs) Excuse me. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. Now, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. <clears throat> to him who overcomes, I grant you, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sit down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with this letter. I, I've heard about this one being taught since I was a youth, so I feel pretty familiar with it, but I'm not sure how much everybody else is. So as a way of refresher, uh, 
Each letter that the Lord writes to churches, he has a little bit of an introduction, a description of himself. And to this one, uh, he, he describes himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Like the one who encompasses everything. The very end, the very beginning, and everything in between. He is the one. And it's almost as if perhaps this church has forgotten that. But he goes on to describe their works. And most of the churches, I think uh, six out of the seven, he talks about their works. And so this one is typical. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And normally when we think of a Christian life, we think of somebody that is cold as maybe somebody that's kind of backslidden a little bit. They're not walking very close to the Lord. And somebody who's hot is somebody that's on fire and zealous for the Lord. But some have pointed out that in Laodicea, they had uh, a couple of springs outside of town. One was a hot spring and one was a cold spring. And they piped the water into the town. And so you can imagine, and in, in the uh, aqueducts that they used, actually I saw a picture of it this morning, it was like a, almost, I don't, almost like they had poured concrete. I don't know if they could back in those days, but it was like a stone type of a thing. <clears throat> with a pipe inside so they would run inside the stone thing. Well, <clears throat> I don't know what kind of insulation they had on there, but you can imagine where the water might start out piping hot at the uh, spring by the time it got to town, depending on its distance or the weather outside, it might be kind of more tepid, not so hot. Or the cold water from the spring on a hot day, it might arrive to town, not be, you might walk up to that uh, aqueduct when it comes into town and you dip your cup in expecting a glass of nice cold water and you get this you know warm stuff that's like this does no good and so they said that's kind of possibly the context that he's writing to them in something that they can identify something cold or hot and certainly the response is something they can identify with because when you take that tepid water you want to just spit it out and that's the the uh, metaphor that he draws there that I will vomit you out of my mouth and I've heard over the years a lot of different uh, puzzling over what the hot might mean, what kind of a hot Christian is, or what kind of colder Christian is, and that type of thing. And I don't really think that's the point, because he doesn't explain to us what the hot Christian is or what the cold Christian is. But what he does describe in vivid detail is the spewing out of the mouth. He said it's like, you're neither cold nor hot. You take a drink of something that's neither cold nor hot, and the air response is you don't want to retain that in your mouth anymore. You want to spit it out with all the vigor you can muster. Hopefully you're outside. So the question really is, why, what is it about this church that makes him want to spew them out? What is it that has generated that, that same response that you would have when you take a drink of tepid water? Why the, the disgust, the abhorrence? And he tells them that very clearly in verse 17. He says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That description, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, is something that we can clearly draw a parallel with the church today at a level that we have not seen throughout the rest of church history. And I get to see it pretty close and personal because we get involved sometimes. They hire engineers sometimes to build their church buildings. 
You would not believe how much the sound system costs or the lights. It's it's not a light switch anymore and a hundred dollars worth of lights in the sanctuary. <laughs> oh man. Well, not to mention the heating and cooling system. The amount of money that it takes to build what we would consider a a reasonably good-sized church building but to meet our level of expectations is phenomenal. The church today has become wealthy, and they say we have need of nothing. We don't. We're not like what we used to be, where where we had to depend on the Lord for everything. We can. We've got our church programs now, and we've got our our money, and we can build big buildings and everything else like that. Which, when you put it that way, doesn't sound good at all. We don't, we don't really need the Lord. I don't. I don't need anything. We're 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 doing church. We come, and and you'll see today that in today's church, that we gather in a church to offer up worship to God. <clears throat> we have finally reached the position now where we don't need Him. We can give to Him and bless Him and glorify Him and all those things. And the Lord says that attitude, that perspective is so abhorrent, I would just love to spew you out of my mouth. And he says, you miss the reality. He says, you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. Wretched. I, I looked up these words for the fun of it. The word, the first word that I don't know what your translation might say, but the first word in that list, that wretched in my translation, it's the same word that you'll find in Romans 7 when Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Uh, in the Greek Old Testament, it was used of Sisera when he was, when he wretchedly fell down dead with a tent peg through his head. It's, it's a, the, uh, it's in Judges chapter 5 when uh, Deborah is singing her song. So she's singing in the poetic sense that he fell down dead wretchedly. And then Psalm 137 talks about Babylon. It's, Psalm 137 is a really interesting one if you want to understand what this word wretched means. Because it begins talking about how the Jews are headed towards Babylon and they're being told to sing. And they're like, how can we sing? You know, we have no temple with it. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. We're going to a foreign land. And we're in, you know, it's, and they're describing their own wretchedness. But then, as he gets towards the tail end, he says that, you know, basically says that the Lord says, Babylon, that you are wretched. You are the one that's going to be brought down low. And so the word seems to be, mean something like, uh, describing someone who looked like they would succeed. They looked like they were set up for success, and they failed miserably. Just that wretchedness of, you could have made it. You should have made it. And you and you just like pathetically failed. You are wretched, he says. You had everything you needed. Pathetically failed. And then the second word there, miserable. Uh, in this translation, you'll find it in First Corinthians fifteen where Paul says, If there is no if there is no resurrection, then we are of all men most miserable. Now, this translation calls it miserable. I think a better translation, as yours might use this, uh, be pitiable. Somebody that you should have pity upon because they're so messed up and they don't even know it. You know, at 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection 
and we're here busy trying to follow the Lord Jesus who is still in the grave, I mean, there's nothing for us but for people to feel sorry for us for being so stupid. It's that sense. You are so pitiable, so miserable. Poor is an interesting word when you trace that one through the Old Testament. It's used a lot, and a lot of times it's connected with leaving uh, crops in your field for the poor. And the idea is that the poor, they don't even have enough to eat. They, just, they got nothing, which is a stark contrast to what this church views itself as, is I am rich and have wealthy and have need of nothing. The poor have nothing. They don't even have enough food to eat. And then he uses the word blind. They're completely unaware, can't see their own condition. They, glad they happily go on in all the falseness without even realizing it. And the word naked <clears throat> is used in the Old Testament for describing somebody that is exposed in shame. And when the Lord was naked on the cross, the idea was to shame him by, expo- by fully exposing him. <clears throat> that sense that they, they are like the, the emperor who had no clothes and they're happily going along and everybody's looking at him just like, that's disgusting and embarrassing that he would even walk down the road in that condition. That's the Lord's view of this church, but they view themselves as having everything necessary to be a good church. <clears throat> and so in verse 18, then he tells them, look, you guys think you have everything. You need to come to me. You need to come and buy from me the gold that will really, the true wealth. You need to find, you need to, you need to come to me that you can have clothing. So that your nakedness is not out exposed, you're not your shame isn't exposed to everybody. You still do need me. They didn't know it. You don't anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you can see your true condition and see the true state of things. And then he says in verse 19, "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten." He would. This is, I mean, it's interesting he puts it that way because he, he just told them that I would like to spew you out of my mouth. Your condition is so abhorrent to me. <clears throat> but he has the capacity to see a person where they're at and what they're doing and still love them even though what they're doing is abhorrent to them. And you see that described here. I love you, and that's why I rebuke you. I'm trying to bring you close. Right now you are distant and you don't even know it. You're so messed up that everybody else sees your shame and you think you're really something. I think it's funny that sometimes you'll hear Christians talking about winning the cultural war. How you could think that you're winning the cultural war at this time is beyond me. Because clearly the culture is going down the tubes. But that's kind of, that's it's such a... Uh, it's just like what the Lord is trying to portray to them. You guys think you're doing so great. You messed up. I want you to turn to me. So in verse 20, <clears throat> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this is kind of what triggered my thinking because I remember Dad was praying, Lord, please come in and be among us. And I don't know what you meant by that, but point of this verse, what is the Lord doing at the door? Because isn't the Lord going to be in the midst of the church? Why is he at the door? 
And he tells them, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him on an individual basis. It's not like he's saying, if the church will hear or recognize that I'm right out there and they open up, then I will come into the midst of them and I will be with them again. He's, he's actually saying, I don't know if there's any hope for this church. If there's any individual in that church who can hears me knock, hear me knocking and you would like to open up the door, I will meet with you. And it's, I mean, it's true. Like you look at the churches today, if you were to walk up to one of some of these big mega churches or whatever and say, hey, you think you are wealthy, but you have left the Lord in the dust. I mean, he's outside knocking at the door. Are they going to listen? I mean, no matter how carefully you explain it, is there any chance that you're going to be able to turn the church from where it is right now to going back to being dependent on the Lord? So he calls to the individuals and says, if there's anybody in there, and you, you see, you begin to understand that and, and sense and notice that I'm not there in the midst that I'm outside. I'm at the door. You know, it's the beautiful thing about the Lord is that he is at the door knocking. He hasn't left. He hasn't abandoned them. He's at the door knocking, trying to get some to come out and to dine with him and be with him. this is where is the Lord with regards to our church is he at the door knocking or is he in our midst and how do you get the Lord in your midst then and as I was thinking about that my mind went to Matthew chapter 18 and this is where I'd like to spend some time at now because at the end of Matthew 18, he said, or not the end, but at the end of the section that we want to look at, verse 20, in Matthew 18, he says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So this is a, this is a gathering, a church, where he is in the midst, he's not at the door. They are gathered in his name. What does that mean? I mean, doesn't every church gather in the name of the Lord Jesus? I mean, like, what? how is it that the Laodicean church has run into the problem where the Lord is at the door and doesn't seem to much be in the midst? So, what does that mean? So, as I started thinking about that, I began to realize that the train of thought starts in the first verse of the, of the chapter. So that's where we go. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, when you put this in the context of Revelation 3 and Laodicea, who says, I have become great, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. 
And then you think about this. I mean, this is the same thing the disciples are saying, isn't it? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You put that in the context of churches instead of individuals. And think about it. Like, I mean, one thing when I'm talking to a believer met for the first time, he goes to a different church, one that I haven't heard of, stay in town or whatever. And I, I got a buddy who he's he left the church he was at and he went to start a new church. Where you know, I know somebody else who goes to a church I haven't heard much about. And so I'll ask him. So, what's the defining features of that church that separate it from everybody else? What a stupid question. I mean, it's, I'm trying to understand, you know, where they're coming from and so forth, but as a church evaluates itself and it says, what are my defining features? What are my defining characteristics that set me apart from the other churches? What is it that makes me better than the other churches? That's what you're saying. And we see this, too. Who is going, Lord, which denomination is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We were all part of this one group, and these guys, they just didn't have it right, so we went out and started a new group. I remember in in uh, in, in Fargo at college, I mean, there was a, a church there who, if I wasn't on recording, I'd probably name them, but since I'm on recording, that's not very polite. But uh, they viewed themselves as the church and any other church who was going to be a true church had to be uh, sprout off of them. The arrogance that's shared with pretty much every other denomination in the world. What is it that sets us apart that makes us better? What is it that's going to make this church greater than the other churches in the neighborhood? Jesus called a little child to them, or to him, and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So verse 3, notice, I never noticed this before, the order Unless you are converted and become as little children, I assume the order was unless you become like a little child and are converted, unless you humble yourself, acknowledge your sins, and come to me and believe in me and are converted. That's not what he says. Unless you are converted and then humble yourself. which is exactly what the disciples needed to hear because they were converted, but they needed to humble themselves. And he puts the little child there to help them to understand what level he wants them to humble themselves. I got a few little children, so look over there. What are little children like? Imagine if you had a club of adults, you know, Elks Lodge or something like that, some kind of club, maybe a bunch of homeschoolers or whatever. You know, whatever. A little child comes up and wants to be part of your exclusive club. 
why should we let you in? What credentials do you have? What do you have that would uh, make you worthy to be part of our group? You put it in the, the scope of the disciples. What would you have to make you worthy to be part of our group? Nothing. They don't have anything. But if the little child says, well, the Lord sent me. It's all I got. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name, if they say, well, the Lord, you know, he... With him. And that's all the credentials they have. He says you should receive them. But reality is, what greater credentials are there than to have the name of the Lord Jesus? He doesn't say, if the child is one of the Pharisees, receive him. Or if he's a Baptist, receive him. Or if he follows New Testament principles, receive him. Or if he's a homeschooler, receive him. All these things that make us the great... I mean, homeschoolers, believe me, it takes one to know one. Homeschoolers are the greatest. We have to tell ourselves that, otherwise we'd be discouraged. We believe it sometimes, too. And we'll use that as our credentials of what it is that makes us closer to God, what it is that makes us more worthy to be in his presence. He says, I am... My name. If you are the Lord's, Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Not exactly sure what sin he has in mind, but given the context of them asking about who is the greatest, it also almost makes me wonder, someone who takes this little child and says, aha, now you're part of us. You're somebody now. And teaches him that same pride that we ourselves have. It would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck. Some people have commented about how being drowned in the sea is a really bad thing for a Jew, so they're talking about the horror of it. But there is another aspect here that occurs to me. Take that millstone and drop him in the sea and take him down to the deepest point on the earth. We'll bring him down to the lowest point. You know, you think you're the greatest. And if you're teaching little children that they'll be great if they're part of your group, you should go down a notch or two. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. This isn't instruction that he's giving us. He's not telling us, if you happen to find your hand to sin, cut it off, because that doesn't even make sense. Since when has your hand ever sinned and the rest of you not been involved in it? I mean, we sin, we are all, we're all involved. But what he's doing here is he's drawing a visual, vivid, vivid visual image to show us how bad sin is. If suppose it could happen where your hand would do something all by itself and it was that grasping for some kind of power or something to bring yourself up you would be better off to chop that hand off and go without a hand than to go where that hand is going to take you. 
Now imagine what it would be like to chop off your own hand or your own foot. If my hand is my claim to power because it is strong, or my foot is my claim to fame because it's swift, makes me the greatest, then I would be better off limping around on only one foot or disabled with only one hand. That's how bad it is. As horrible as it would be to be missing the foot, it's much worse to be drugged by that foot. Or your eye, if your eye sees some position that it would like to go for it. Because in the Middle East, when they talk about the eye, they'll talk about an evil eye. What they're doing is they're describing jealousy. Like, or covetousness, you know, those kind of where somebody has something that you don't have and you wish they had, like they're they're pretty and you're not, or you know, and you see that and you so and so their their idea is that every time you look at them, you just kinda of like, you know, I give them that kind of like, man, I wish I had what you had. And it's not a friendly open eye, that's more of like a oh man. Mm. That's their evil eye that they're talking about, an eye that looks for something, wants to grab onto it. Put it up, pull it out. So then, in verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to seek, or come to save that which is lost. Who's he talking to? He's talking to an adult, right? Do not despise one of these little ones. Who's the adult? We all think we're the adults, right? You can see that the disciples probably thought they were the adults, the ones with credentials. And if some little one, and it's the it's the image that comes to my mind as he says this, here I am, and here comes this little one. Like I'm the big guy, and he's the little one. Like, I got the wrong perspective, right? I mean, aren't we all the little ones? Aren't we the ones that have no credentials except for his name? But we tend to grab a credential or two, and he says, don't, you know, if you, somebody comes up to you and, and they have no credentials... Don't look down on them. What's your problem? How come you haven't matured as a Christian? Why are you so so small there? You need to clean up a little bit before you can... And all they got is, well... I mean, he. the next parable describes what he means by little ones without credentials. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine which did not go astray. Even so, it is the will of your Father who is in heaven that one, or it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This little one is like a sheep that's gone astray. We know what that is. It's one of those disciples or one of those followers of the Lord who has not walked where the shepherd went and that it went off on its own. It wasn't feeding with the rest of the flock. It was finding food out on its own. And it got itself lost and in trouble. 
We know what that means. That's somebody who's gone out and backslidden or something. You know, they've, they've lived their life not the way the Lord wanted them to do it, not with what the rest of the people were doing. They lived themselves. And if one of those little ones who's made a bumbling mess of their lives, they come back and they say, mm. all I've got is the name of the Lord. That's the only... Don't despise them. Because that's with the Lord. That's where his heart is at. Is with those little ones that have nothing. They've made a mess of their lives. They're like a prodigal son. They're like Peter who's gone and denied the Lord. And he comes back to the disciples. Tail between his legs. Only he doesn't come back with his tail between his legs. You know why? Because the Lord met with him and restored him. So when Peter came back to the disciples. He was just like, guys... The Lord has loved me. In spite of all that I've done, the way I denied him, he has loved me, he has grabbed hold of me, he has brought me close. And that's all the credentials that Peter had. And the Lord is saying, you better take him back. You better not say to him, oh man, you need to prove yourself a little bit before you can come back in. But the flock is going to leave a big gap wherever you're at for a while until you know we kind of forget about those issues. The way the Lord tells a parable here is different than in Luke. In Luke, he called all his friends and neighbors, right? And said, come rejoice with me. Here, nothing is said about the friends and neighbors. If he should find it, in verse 13, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go straight. And it's like, the sheep should be rejoicing too. They shouldn't kind of pull away from this one that was worn and all. They receive him back into the fold like he's one of them. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. So what do you do then, verse 15? Or if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If there, if the flock is all at the same level, and you don't have different levels of sheep, and somebody sins against you, who do you appeal to? How do you? If we're all little ones, who's going to take care of the mess if somebody sins against you? And so he tells them, "Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear," Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and if he refuses to hear him, tell the church, and if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. If you have somebody who is causing the problems, and he won't listen to the whole flock, then you put him out of the flock. But if he sins against you, and he repents, you don't despise that little one who sinned against you. When he comes... In the name of the Lord Jesus, you bring him back in. But if, as the flock, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You are a bunch of little ones, but you have a great Lord. And whatever you, as a bunch of little ones, as a flock of sheep, agree to, I will back you. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. 
doesn't say where two or three are gathered together in the same gathering as the disciples in Jerusalem. You remember one time they did have a conflict and they sent Paul and was it Silas or Barnabas, one or two, and they went back to Jerusalem to kind of get a, a ruling from Jerusalem as to how to handle the situation. And the Lord doesn't say you don't go back to the headquarters and because you know at Jerusalem is where I put my name. He doesn't even say where two or three are gathered together as homeschoolers, there am I in the midst of them. Or two or three are gathered together as Baptists, there am I in the midst of them. Or New Testament principles. But where two or three are gathered together and they have no credentials, other than the fact that the Lord saved them, he was sought them as lost sheep, he found them, he restored them. That's all they've got. He's in their midst. So the Laodicean church, he said, you say I am rich and have been become wealthy and have need of nothing. And, and we, talked, we thought about, you know, earthly wealth as in money but there is other kinds of riches too other kinds of things that we grab on that we build ourselves up as if we esteem ourselves I've seen people say what we need is more doctrine if we can just get people built up in the doctrine then we will be established. It doesn't work. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've seen people that are saturated up to their eyeballs in doctrine and they fall away. On the flip side, there's other people that say what we need is more love. We need to be open and accepting and then we will be established. And that doesn't work either. What we need is to recognize that we are wretched and poor and blind and miserable. Not to live in the shame of it, but to acknowledge the reality of it. I mean, who do we think we are? I was describing this morning like if you were to open up the door of my heart, and it's true, uh, it's like looking at a lift station, which is like basically a, a pump that takes sewage from the low point and lifts it up. And I've been inside them buildings. It reeks. Talked about making the eyes water and things like that. you got to ventilate that thing to no end just to be able to walk inside that. I mean, it stinks. That's what my heart looks like. Do I live in shame because my heart is so wicked and evil? Do you think Peter lived in shame because he had betrayed the Lord or denied the Lord? Once the Lord restores you, once he says, yeah, I know that's what you are. That's why I came seeking you. I mean, you're one of the lost. (laughs) I want to bring you to myself. We live in the reality that we're in a flesh that is cooking up evil and just spewing it nonstop. That's real. But we live in the goodness and the grace that 
The Lord Jesus died for me. I think it's most beautiful when you're with a group of people who are glad they're saved, glad that the Lord has shown mercy. And it occurs to me that people like that are people who have no other credentials except for the name of the Lord. And I think the Lord's in their midst. You don't often find a group of people like that. You can find individuals. You can find people that you talk to them who have heard the Lord knocking and realize that it seems like where the church was once vibrant years ago, it seems to have lost some of that. You know, innocent churches all across everywhere. People are dissatisfied with churches all over the place. But they have found the fellowship of the Lord to know their sins forgiven, to know that He has loved them you find people like that, and the fellowship is sweet. It really is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he says. He's still knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me to be near the Lord. I appreciated that. What psalm was it that you read there, Derek? Was that 137? No, it was one. Seventy-three. He talks about how he said in verse two, "My feet had almost stumbled; my steps had nearly slipped." I saw what the bulls were doing. I saw that they were great, and I was a nobody. It wasn't fair that they had everything and I got nothing. But then, in verse twenty-five. Or, or say, let's go back to verse 23. He says, <coughs> let's go back to verse 21. Thus my heart was grieved, I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. It's kind of like what was being described at the end of uh, the Laodicean church. <coughs> I was foolish and ignorant before you. I was a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me up to glory. Peter, having denied the Lord, sitting there like such an idiot, like a foolish beast, and then to find the Lord come to him and find out, you're holding me by my hand? You... I am with you? You are with me? So the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? What credentials, what do I have other than you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Of course he doesn't desire anybody else. If he finds a God that loves him like he is, you want to be with him? And he does. My flesh and heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed the, or destroyed those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. I may declare all my works. I have seen, but I have failed. And I was envying the wicked. But 
I got no credentials, nothing to offer to God. What kind of worship can I, who have envied the wicked, offer to God? Nothing. I have put my trust in the Lord God. He will He will draw near me who is so wicked. It's good for me to draw near to God. Father, we come before you this morning again. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that we have the advantage of being able to look back on history and see the facts of what happened. That the Lord went to the cross and he bore our sins there on the tree. We can know it happened and we can rest in you, our God. And we can rejoice in the grace of our Lord Jesus whose heart is toward the lost. He came to save the lost. We thank you for him this morning. Amen.